Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. O Lord Jesus Christ, you who promised that when two or three are gathered in your name, you would be here among us. We ask you to be here now and in the coming year, in all that we undertake in our studies and our pursuit of a relationship with you. We ask you to send down your Holy Spirit in a powerful way upon each one of us, upon our families, upon all the members of the Institute of Catholic Culture, and especially upon our professors who will guide us into the truth that you have revealed. In all things, Lord, we ask that we might be guided to glorify your holy name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our speaker this evening is a Catholic priest in the Jesuit order and is president of the Magis Center of Reason and Faith, the Spitzer Center, and the Napa Institute. Father Robert Spitzer earned his Master of Arts in Philosophy from St. Louis University, Master of Divinity from Gregorian University, Master of Theology from Weston School, and his PhD from the Catholic University of America author of 10 books, producer of nine television series for EWTN, and founder of six major national institutions. Father Spitzer has made multiple major media appearances, including on Larry King Live, The Today Show, The History Channel, and PBS. His academic specialties are the philosophy of science, particularly space-time theory and transcendent implications of contemporary Big Bang cosmology, metaphysics, particularly the theory of time and the philosophy of God, and organizational ethics and its relationship to personal and cultural transformation. It is a great honor to welcome back to the Institute of Catholic Culture this evening, Father Robert Spitzer. Father Spitzer, welcome. Thanks so much, uh, Father guys, and thanks so much, Peter. Uh, appreciate it immensely. And of course, it's a great honor to be with uh, all of you tonight in this wonderful crowd to speak about the gift of all gifts that uh, the Lord has given us, uh, namely the Holy Eucharist. And what a gift it is, that what a transformative gift, uh, what a gift it is as protection against the evil spirit, a gift too of forgiveness, a gift of healing, a gift of not only transformation, but unity with the mystical body, a gift that leads us to everlasting life. And these things are so well articulated uh, in uh, the, the scriptures and, of course, the church fathers. Yet, uh, at the same time, we live in this uh, uh, skeptical uh, scientific age, and 
Uh, I am a total fan of science, um, but uh, somehow uh, uh, people have tried to use science uh, against the faith. And uh, as God would have it in the great mystery of his being, he's now using science to validate faith, validate God, validate life after death, validate Jesus Christ, especially with the shot of Turin. And now these Eucharistic miracles, he's using science to validate the, the real presence of Jesus Christ in the Holy Eucharist. So it's a wonderful time that we live in. And um, I'm just going to talk about, um, start the, uh, today's uh, talk on the Holy Eucharist uh, with three Eucharist, contemporary Eucharistic miracles. Um, uh, the first one is the miracle of Buenos Aires. Uh, this occurred in 1996. Uh, it was actually under the supervision of Archbishop Bergoglio, which was now, I think, uh, everybody knows, uh, Pope Francis. Um, and uh, very good uh, scientific uh, uh, pedigree for this miracle. Uh, the second uh, uh, is uh, the Tixla miracle uh, in uh, Chilpancingo, Chilapa, Mexico. Um, this Tixla miracle is totally amazing. The scientific pedigree even better. Uh, nine, uh, we'll talk th about this uh, when I get to it, but oh, all the lab reports uh, um, of the things I'll be talking about tonight are available uh, in the book by Dr. Ricardo Castanian Gomez. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, and that was a miracle in 2006. Um, and then the Sokolka miracle in Sokolka, Poland in 2008. Again, excellent uh, scientific pedigree there uh, as well. Now, you're probably wondering, you know, well, what about Lanciano? I mean, you know, these Eucharistic miracles have been happening for a long time, and indeed they have. Um, I decided uh, today, tonight, to, to just go with uh, uh, these three miracles, uh, not only because of the excellent scientific uh, pedigree, the availability of the lab reports, which is really important uh, to science people uh, to get the real data down there, and uh, I'll give you some of the sources where you can get these um, the data, but also because the chain of custody is absolutely guaranteed uh, in these miracles, uh, you know, and there's, of course, genetic testing available and a variety of other kinds of things that are all really important in, in sort of substantiating uh, the mystery and the reality of the real presence of Jesus uh, in the Holy Eucharist. So I just chose these three, but yes, Lanciano is a, is a wonderful miracle. I think you can uh, um, you know, uh, most people are aware of the fact that uh, uh, in about 736, right around there, um, when a monk was having a faith crisis with respect to the Holy Eucharist, um, he did uh, see this host that has been carefully preserved in Lanciano. Um, and it is really the beginning point where we begin to see not just a blood stain smeared on the Eucharist, um, but instead real tissue growing out of the Holy Eucharist. So the three, uh, uh, you, know, uh, you know, like I said, Lanciano, I don't have a doubt about it. The difficulty is I can't use it uh, to a group of scientists and, and show, um, you know, through a scientific exposition that this really um, has the kind of uh, credentials behind it that I can with the other three miracles. But um, just in fairness to Lanciano, Dr. Eduardo Linori, in Rome has basically uh, done a very fine job uh, doing a scientific analysis of this. And it goes all the way back to 1976. And it's a wonderful thing. I don't want to forget that. I don't want to forget any of these other miracles. 
I'm just sticking with the um, uh, the three contemporary ones I've listed for the simple reason that a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. We live in a, st- a skeptical uh, age right now. Science, uh, God has delivered right into our hands the capacity to use science to validate uh, his real presence in the Eucharist. Let's stick with the strong ones where we have the really good data, the lab reports accessible. Uh, accessible. That's the one um, we want to, uh, uh, the ones we want to use. So that's why I've limited, uh, you know, people will say, what about Brazil? And what about India? And what about, and uh, well, that's my answer uh, to all such questions. Uh, but you are more than, uh, uh, please uh, go ahead and ask them in the Q&A. Let's start with uh, Buenos Aires then. We'll give a little bit of context first. Uh, then we're going to take a look at the miraculous features of the Buenos Aires um, miracle. And then um, you can see a little photo of that, a little uh, a photograph of it. Uh, the one thing uh, I want you to know just before we begin, uh, what the, the comment I made earlier, this is not a blood stain on the Eucharist. This is actual tissue, human heart tissue that is growing out of the substance of the consecrated host in all three cases. And I think that can be very firmly scientifically established. So what happened at uh, Buenos Aires? What happened was that a uh, uh, one of the uh, parishioners uh, in a church there in Buenos Aires um, uh, you know, found a host sitting in the back of the church. How it got there is truly uh, in anybody's guess. Maybe somebody was going to take it out of the uh, the church for purposes of desecration. Maybe they were not doing it for that purpose, but the host was quite um, dirty. And so when the parishioner said, oh, I found this host in the back of the church, he gave it to the uh, priest, uh, she gave it to the priest. Priest in turn put it in a glass of um, water, regular tap water, uh, put it into the tabernacle over the course of around uh, 30 days, uh, 30 to 40 days there. I forget the exact number of days, but it was uh, a little over a month. Uh, that the um, the host was in the water. Now, in a month, I can assure you, uh, a host will dissolve very naturally uh, in tap water. There should be nothing left. Once the host is completely dissolved, uh, normally it's disposed of in a very respectful and sacred way in a sacrorum or uh, someplace uh, equally sacred. So the idea um, uh, here was the uh, person... Um, uh, in charge, in this case, it was the pastor of the church there in Buenos Aires. Uh, he goes uh, into the tabernacle to uh, see if the host is dissolved, and the host is not dissolved. Now, after 30 days, that's already going to tell you something is very, very strange going on here. So the idea then is that uh, he looks at it, and he can see, uh, you can actually, uh, if we flip to that picture there, Peter, uh, you can see um, that uh, there's a flesh growing out of the hose. It's kind of coming up. It looks, it's, you know, obviously sitting above the surface of the hose. Uh, and you, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, has a perceptible depth. And, um, you know, when the, the person saw it, he said, wow, is this some kind of a mold, uh, you know, of some sort? Uh, what, what could this be? And uh, so he basically shows it, uh, um, to the um, uh, other priests at the church, they in turn say, well, 
you know, we better talk to Archbishop Bergoglio about this. And um, uh, Archbishop Bergoglio, Pope Francis, uh, had the very good sense of saying, photograph it and get a scientific expert as soon as possible. So they did. They brought in a professional photographer. Uh, they brought in Dr. Uh, Ricardo Castagnon Gomez. Um, and this is a, a wonderful thing because the church uh, tried to have a scientific expert come in there uh, who would not have um, you know, a, a religious bias of any kind to make sure that you know uh, he would have, as it were, the critical eye, uh, the critical scientific and skeptical eye cast on this host. So uh, he came in there, and of course, he was an atheist, uh, as he describes himself, a secular and convinced atheist. And uh, he came in there, and he thought, "Oh, I can, this is going to be a." you know, a duck soup operation. I'll be able to disprove this in no time. But what he found when he looked at the host was, first of all, he was very perplexed uh, that the host had not dissolved in the water. And he, you know, did this kind of cross-examination, you know, of the people there. And and uh, they said, no, no, uh, we kept it in the water. There's no question of chain of custody, et cetera. So he then begins to examine um, the, the uh, tissue that seems to be growing out of it. It's clearly not a mold. Uh, he knows, he can see as he's looking at it, there's actually morphological characteristics that are easily identifiable uh, on this tissue. And it's, of course, the narrowly striated uh, tissue of uh, the, the heart tissue. Um, and uh, so he says, gosh, this appears to be cardiac tissue. Um, that is growing out of uh, the host. Uh, I'm not absolutely sure. I'd have to do a scientific investigation uh, of it. Uh, so he did his own investigation of it, uh, finding that the morphological characteristics alone, without a full histopathological exam, um, you know, indicated that this was actually heart tissue, and it seemed to be quite integrated with the substance of the host, as if to say this you know, um, organic material is was growing out of the um, uh, material of the uh, uh, of the host, and as we shall see in a moment, it's living cardiac tissue, um, but uh, just a little bit more of the story. So uh, Pope Francis, uh, I mean uh, Archbishop Bergoglio at the time, he says, "Look, look we ought to go ahead and get a uh, um, a scientific expert at one of the best histopathological labs." Uh, in the world. Let's uh, go ahead and um, take a thin slice of this, which uh, this is the recommendation of uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Castagnon Gomez. Let's take a thin slice of this host and let's uh, put it between two rather thick, uh, you know, uh, glass plates and let's send it up to Columbia University there to uh, Dr. Frederick Zugaby, who had written many, many books on pathology and was um, part of the uh, you know, a, a very prestigious team um, at the um, uh, New York City Pathological uh, Pathology Lab. So, uh, by the way, if you want the uh, the pathology report, happy to send it to you, um, and uh, I can get you. Uh, uh, you can actually see uh, what he said, and I'm going to try and report this as exactly as I can. But in any case, um, before I, I've, I've kind of skipped a, a really important part here. And that is um, before uh, Castellan Gomez uh, uh, sent up uh, any tissue sample, uh, what they did was they put the host back into sterilized water. Get this, 
for three years. I kid you not, three years in sterilized water. Now you think to yourself, well, the host is gonna dissolve and all the morphological features of that tissue through simple autolysis are gonna just be completely blurred, right? I mean, they're just not gonna be around. So, I mean, three years, uh, you're not gonna get uh, uh, more, more of a time cap than this. So uh, what do they do? They pull the host out after three years. The host still is, you know, it hasn't completely dissolved. A little bit of it is dissolved. There's a little bit of autolysis. There's a little bit of, uh, you know, a degeneration of the morphological characteristics on the tissue. But to be honest with you, still quite identifiable. So much so that they took another set of photographs. And then, of course, you can do, you know, a superimposition of uh, the, you know, called digital overlay analysis, right? Or you can put the two things there and you can see that the tissue really has almost decomposed, uh, you know, or so little, uh, you might say insignificantly, but it had decomposed just a little bit, but the morphological characteristics are very clearly there. So that's when they, of course, this is now three years and 30 days later, they send it off to Columbia. Dr. Frederick Zugabe gets the uh, the tissue sample from, you know, that's, you know, thin slice taken from the tissue on the host. So he basically examines this thing and puts together what he calls one of the strangest pathology reports he's ever had to make. Because the first thing he identifies is, well, uh, you know, this is a heart tissue, no question about it, comes from the upper left ventricle. Uh, there's no question about that. The narrowing of the striations pretty much indicates clearly, um, you know, that it comes from that part. And from the upper part of the left ventricle, you know, that's, you know, where the uh, blood gets pumped uh, by the heart to the rest of the body. So he says, uh, now that didn't phase me too much. You know, I get lots of heart samples and so forth. But he says, the really interesting thing is when I did the test, and, and now remember, this thing, this piece of tissue has been in water for three years and 30 days. Uh, it has also had a significant time delay being sent up to Columbia um, uh, to the pathology lab there in New York City at, uh, to Dr. Frederick Zugabe there coming. And of course, by the time he gets it and takes the tissue in its normal course, and why did he do it? Because intentionally, Castanon Gomez did not want Zugabe to know what the source of the tissue was. So he wanted it to be completely, uh, as it were, unknown uh, tissue fragment that he was uh, supposed to um, uh, analyze. So uh, to make a long story short, he's looking at this tissue and he sees in the tissue living white blood cells. I kid you not, living white blood cells. And he's reporting this. He, he basically is thinking, this has to be the freshest tissue ever um, because, you know, that living white blood cells die within a few hours after being disconnected from an embodied circulatory system. I mean, there's just nothing to sustain uh, the white blood cells any further. So when this tissue is removed, I mean, never has it been heard of that, you know, a, a piece of tissue uh, could be for, you know, weeks on end, let alone three and a half years on end, 
uh, you know, disconnected from an embodied circulatory system and still have living white blood cells actually doing healing activities in the um, in the tissue. And so, of course, he's thinking that this this tissue must have been removed very recently, uh, and he couldn't, you know, perplexed as to how that could possibly be done, since it would have had to have been within a few hours after an autopsy or something. I mean, after the the, the death of the body. So uh, he also notices that the white blood cells were embedded in the ventricle wall. And so uh, what does that mean? That basically means that the man probably endured uh, from, you know, whom the, the, the tissue came, probably endured a, a polytrauma, uh, you know, or was at least severely beaten around the chest or had a heart attack um, you know, and then revived and had a heart attack again. Uh, and we'll talk about the validation of this wounded heart tissue uh, in the other two hosts as well. But so he makes this report and he says, one of the most unusual pieces of tissue, I, you know, how in the world were the white blood cells uh, preserved? I mean, did you just, you know, take this uh, from a person? And then Castellan Gomez reveals to him well, uh, this actually uh, uh, comes, I'm an atheist, by the way, I just uh, want to tell you that this host, uh, um, I mean, that this uh, uh, tissue comes from a Eucharistic host. And Zugabi just sat there dumbfounded with his jaw wide open, and he just said, that's impossible. That's naturalistically impossible. And that's what I want to concentrate on. Let's go to our second, our next slide there. Yeah, so there's several features about this host that truly defy scientific explanation. In other words, we would say, from a naturalistic point of view with Zugabi, this cannot occur. You can't have living white blood cells in heart tissue that are living, you know, years after um, the tissue has been uh, disconnected from an embodied circulatory system. And that is certainly the case. But the second thing is even more preposterous, that uh, you have heart tissue growing out of an unrelated bread substance, right? A, a host is made of a bread substance. You've got the molecules of, a, of bread, et cetera, et cetera. And now you've got the, the, the molecules of living heart tissue growing out of a, a non-living uh, substance of a very different organic quality. And you look at that and you go, what in the world could this be, right? I mean, this is just like naturalistically inexplicable. Just wait till the Sikolka host. I've got some more interesting thoughts about that one. But anyway, so uh, uh, basically uh, uh, this gets uh, more or less publicized in various different journals, um, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, the, the lab reports are not yet, uh, you know, completely public. Uh, Dr. Cassinine Gomez, really after the, you know, this three and a half year period in water, you know, he submits, you know, the uh, the tissues as well, not to just Sugabi uh, over there for the histopathological exam, but for the genetic exam as well. Uh, he submits it uh, to two different labs. And of course, they cannot uh, use polymerase chain reaction to amplify a DNA profile. They just can't do it. So, of course, the natural thing to, to believe, well, if this host has been sitting there for three uh, years at, 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 you know, plus in uh, water, 
Um, that probably explains, you know, the autolysis must have been so significant at that point that, um, you know, the DNA uh, profile couldn't be amplified through polymerase chain reaction. So, I mean, that is basically at the end of the day what people concluded, but it was still kind of unusual because, hey, you know, you have living white blood cells and tissue, right? How dead could the tissue be if it's living, uh, if you get my point? How much autolysis and degeneration could there be if the tissue is still alive uh, as marked by the, uh, uh, the presence of, 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 the, of the living white blood cells? So that's where the Buenos Aires investigation, uh, strange indeed, naturalistically inexplicable indeed, but many people said, eh, you know, some of these tests, that's an awful long time in water, you know, and uh, a variety of other observations were made. Let's not just leap to uh, conclusions here. Um, and uh, so um, uh, basically, um, uh, we have a, a truly naturalistically inexplicable event. Uh, but Cassignon Gomez, the atheist, is now beginning to think, wow. You know, maybe I've been a little hasty in my position here, but um, more to come. Let's now skip. Uh, you can you can see that little picture there of uh, of the host, and you can get a pretty good idea what it looked like, and uh, um, you know the uh, where the you know slice was taken uh, from the host for the tissue sample. All right, let's go to the um, Tixla miracle in two thousand six. So um, uh, a sister. Uh, in uh, one of the parishes there in Tixla, and is taking uh, a bunch of hosts from, um, you know, the uh, you know the ciborium that uh, um, you know the priest is caring to put into her own picks for um, uh, distribution to the sick. So as she looks down into her picks, she notices that one of the hosts appears to have a dimple in it, and that dimple you know, appears to be like filled in with something. And then uh, she notices that there is blood literally trickling out of that dimple going along the surface of the host. So she thinks to herself, wow, that, that looks like blood. So she taps the priest on the shoulder and points to the pigs. And she's, by this time, of course, she's crying, and the priest looks at it and says, okay, just put this in the tabernacle, you know, we'll come back to it later. So, you know, goes through the regular procedure, puts the host in the tabernacle again, same thing, and uh, they come back and uh, check on the host uh, um, later. When she comes back uh, to check on it, she opens the tabernacle, and it smells like fresh bread, uh, inside the tabernacle, very strangely. And she notices as well that um, the host is not only not altered, but more blood is on the surface of the host than was there originally. So she comes to the conclusion, this host is continuing to bleed quite right. So, of course, she then uh, reports this back uh, to um, you know, um, uh, the, the, the pastor, the pastor in turn uh, says, you know, we've got to call in an investigator. 
And so um, they wisely, the bishop, uh, uh, Bishop Castro there of uh, Chilpanzingo, Chilapa, calls in uh, Ricardo Castagnan Gomez. Number one, he was the investigator of the the Buenos Aires host. And now he had a series of procedures uh, that he wanted to actually um, utilize uh, going forward uh, to examine the host. He wasn't going to make the same mistakes about delay in getting genetic testing, et cetera, et cetera, leaving it in water, et cetera, et cetera, that had been made in the Buenos Aires investigation. So um, having this in mind, basically, he uh, he got some funding from the diocese, but a lot of the funding he paid for out of pocket. I mean, the guy was obviously curious. He really did want to see uh, what was going on. And he paid out of pocket for many of these um, uh, uh, lab uh, uh, for one of these uh, laboratory investigations himself. So uh, you can see the team that he used there yet. Uh, forensic investigators, uh, histopathological investigators, light microscope investigators, uh, you know, the um, uh, uh, DNA uh, sequencing investigators, genetic testing of various kinds, uh, photographic and imaging experts, you know, and so, I mean, that's a good team uh, that that, uh, he assembled. And he did it in a variety of laboratories in three different countries, uh, Bolivia, Mexico, and the United States. And you can see that this uh, he was taking this really seriously, procedurally, structurally, uh, taking this very, very seriously. And then he published a book. Uh, if you read Spanish, um, I encourage you to get it. Um, El Malagro um, Eucaristica de Chilpanzingo Chilapa, um, in, uh, which is a, um, um, you know, his uh, book. Uh, you know, at, uh, by the time he wrote this book, um, he does have both the scientific uh, explanation and his own theological and spiritual, um, you know, a- explanation as well. But what I want to call your attention to are the last 19 appendices, uh, well, the 19 appendices in that book, because all of the, um, those appendices are basically the lab data and the lab reports, even the signed lab reports, from the histopathological, genetic, and and um, you know um, uh, uh, microscopic, forensic, etc. analysis um, that had been done on um, the uh, uh, the uh, uh, host by various different um, uh, you know scientists um, and doctors. So if you really are a scientific type and you really have a need to get a hold of this data, I beg you. Um, you know, get this uh, book by Dr. Ricardo Castellan Gomez. You can get it on Kindle Spa- uh, Spanish. Um, and just look at those 19 appendices. Also, his two chapters on the scientific, uh, the summary of the scientific data at the beginning of the book. Just look at these things. Um, by the way, if you don't read Spanish, there's always Google Translate. Um, and I used, uh, you know, um, uh, another service, a translation service to, to get it uh uh, translated as as well, but the the main thing is is Google Translate does a very good job on those appendices. So if you have a need for this, or you want you have like scientific friends, they want the data, please you you know get this book. It's actually very reasonable on Kindle uh, there, and you can um, uh, also uh, go ahead and get a um, 
uh, you know, a Google Translate or some other translator to, to do this for you. Okay, um, let's just go through what's going on in that Tixla host because it truly, um, you know, has a miraculous component. But I, I stopped mid-course there. Casting Young Gomez, as I said, got together, put together these scientific teams. After he put together the scientific teams, uh, he basically went ahead and uh, systematized all the lab reports and the investigations. You know how it is when you go to get a miracle approved uh, by um, you know, a papal commission. You actually have to go through a scientific commission first. Then you have a, uh, uh, an ecclesiastical commission. Uh, the bishop there, uh, Bishop Castro there, did in Chilpancingo, Chilapa, actually did it. Uh, he put together the whole investigation, big, thick book, you know, on the uh, scientific investigations. Uh, uh, Castellan Gomez and the experts there on the scientific team uh, unanimously approved it. And so um, Bishop Castro uh, basically also approved it, um, you know, as being ecclesiastically sound uh, through his own uh, ecclesiastical committee. So this one has been approved. Um, uh, after the uh, uh, approval process, I'm just going to give you some descriptions of the thing and talk a little bit about the DNA um, conundrum for just a second, and then uh, we can um, uh, proceed to Sokolka. Uh, the main thing to remember about this one, as I said, this is not the same as the tissue growing out of the host. That was Buenos Aires, and as we shall see, that's also the case a case in Sokolka, Poland in 2008. This one has tissue in it, but that little dimple in the host that you see on the side there, if you advance up there to that picture, you can see that there's something like, you know, you can't identify from the picture that is heart tissue that's sitting there in that dimple. And from that heart tissue in that dimple, which by the way, you can see that this is heart tissue, you can see the elongated cells with the contraction nodes uh, that are there present. Uh, it's very hard to see um, this from morphological characteristics on the surface of the tissue. It's just, it's too difficult, it's too small. And it's also kind of like um, uh, covered almost in blood. And I'll talk about that in a moment. But you can definitely see that the contraction nodes, the elongated cells, the other clues to the fact that it's cardiac tissue are there. Now, what's going on is the host is actually, as the sister identified, it was bleeding and bleeding more. Uh, so over the course of time, it continued to bleed. And even another scientific examination was done in 2011, which Kasanyan Gomez was present to. And even in that, uh, you could see still, this is five years later, you could see not only in the tissue, but in the blood, you could see not only active macrophages, these are like leukocytes, right? These are like white blood cells. You could actually see um, uh, the white blood cells, right, are like the healing cells, right? Um, you could actually see these macrophages, these leukocytes, phagocytizing lipids. I mean, they're literally engulfing these fat cells, you know, which are like dangerous cells, troublesome cells. Uh, that you would find in a wounded in a wounded tissue. And you can see that the macrophages are actually, um, you know, um, performing these healing activities um, in uh, the blood and tissue of this host. But not only that, you can also see in the blood that's coming from this tissue, 
you can see active red blood cells. And in addition, this is like, right, we're talking about five years after this uh, tissue has been, uh, and, and blood has been disconnected from an embodied circulatory system, you can still see that more blood is coming out without, without a connection to a, 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 an embodied circulatory system. This is not a likely possibility under any naturalistic explanation that I know of. And of course, the idea is that the blood actually has human hemoglobin, human Im immunoglobulins, et cetera. The normal, uh, you know, AB blood type, by the way, Buenos Aires, once again, uh, AB blood type, same as the shroud, right? You can see the whole panoply of blood features that are coming out of the host. Now, of course, it was of extreme interest to Castagnon Gomez to make sure that no fraud could have been perpetrated, right? So that somebody might have taken a syringe, right? Syringe, and then, you know, kind of inserted a little fresh blood right before the old scientific test and, you know, and so forth and so on. And uh, so he made sure uh, over the course, you know, of the um, testing, um, he made sure that the blood was um, definitely coming from the tissue and the dimple of the host, not from, you know, somebody inserting something there. And how would you tell? You can tell it, in, uh, you, can, uh, in, you can determine it in two ways. The first thing is that if you had somebody introducing the blood with a syringe, but like they had to do it the night before so they would be undetected, then when it gets to the lab people, a couple of days later and gets investigated, then all you can see is that it will have an equal pressure, right? There won't be any outward pressure, inward pressure. They'll just find its normal, stable um, uh, level of pressure. But now we can still detect um, the uh, pressure moving from the inside of the dimple outwardly and pushing that blood along the surface. So there's definitely outward pressure going on. And this is like hours, and uh, no, days after um, the uh, blood has been, you know, uh, the host has, has been in the hands of people who are going to test it and could clearly see that no one was inserting blood uh, into the dimple of the host. So there's, out, there's pressure from the inside out. And then you can see from the coagulation layers that you can, you can see that it has been coming out over the course of time, ever so gradually, ever, you know, you know, producing another coagulation on another coagulation level, et cetera, et cetera, as it moves along uh, the surface of the host. So clearly it continues to bleed. It continues to have active um, uh, uh, red blood cells, active uh, leukocytes, macrophages, uh, you know, performing healing activities, I continue to come out, and uh, you can see that the morphological characteristics are not as evident as the Buenos Aires host, but definitely it's heart tissue and it's wounded heart tissue. Otherwise, you wouldn't have all these um, macrophages out there doing these healing activities. Uh, moreover, uh, there are uh, microbiological indications uh, that the, uh, the tissue um, had been wounded. Okay, and all of these things uh, being present, they, of course, do not one, but two genetic tests. And what do they come up with in the genetic test? Very simply, they come up with no amplifiable DNA profile from a polymerase chain reaction. It's utterly bizarre. I mean, this tissue is utterly alive. 
It hasn't been soaking up in water for three years and so forth and so on. This should have been, and plus it was a very adequate um, sample of both blood and tissue. It should have given some kind of amplifiable DNA profile because there is evidence of the molecular components of DNA uh, that are there uh, in the um, in the uh, in the blood, and so there's there, it's like DNA without a profile. That's best way of putting it. And the, these guys on the second examination, you know, Cassian Gomez was there when they actually did um, you know the Plummer's chain reaction, and he could see you know that they're scratching their heads, right? They're just saying what what in the world, you know, uh, this thing is not. Um, uh, giving rise uh, to uh, a DNA profile. I wonder why. More on that later. Let's skip now to 2008, uh, two years later, uh, to Sikolka, Poland. And uh, Sikolka, uh, uh, you know, a host was dropped at mass. And when the host was dropped, uh, basically um, the, uh, uh, you know, the priest picked it up, looked at it and said, oh, you know, this is dirty. Uh, let's put it... Uh, uh, into um, the water uh, in the uh, tabernacle there. So he, uh, you know, puts it in the water and um, the uh, um, assist, uh, 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 the assistant, the sacristan, excuse me, comes back and she uh, um, looks at it. And, uh, and of course she spots, you can see that little uh, crescent-like red shape there on that picture. Maybe if you advance it up there, you can see that uh, crescent-like red shape that's not just blood that's coming out. It looks like a red stain. It's not just red stain. It actually has depth. It's like red tissue that is growing out of the host. More on the validation of that in just a moment. So that red tissue is growing out of uh, the host. And, um, you know, so the, uh, uh, the priest in charge reported it to the bishop. And the bishop said, look, um, you know, take it out of the water. Put it onto a corporal. Do not, um, uh, you know, uh, touch it. Just uh, leave it there on the corporal. And, of course, they left it there for a considerable amount of time. Uh, I believe it was in the neighborhood of about a, um, I forget what the amount of time was, but it was certainly over several months uh, that it was left on the tabernacle. And then it was reexamined again. The red crescent was still there. The host was uh, not fully dissolved. And of course, uh, finally, uh, I believe it was after a, a year or two, uh, the bishop um, uh, actually said, look, we've got to get this thing over to, um, you know, uh, a team. By the way, it was a consecrated host, obviously, that was going to be distributed at Holy Communion. So, um, uh, so they got uh, uh, the whole host. They did not send a slice of the tissue they wanted um, a medical team to, uh, at the University of Bialystok uh, Bi uh, Medical School, they wanted that team to examine the whole host itself. So they sent it to two different doctors to do two uh, um, different independent examinations of the host. Uh, Dr. Maria Latkowska and Dr. Stanislaw Sulkowski. Now, um, uh, these, like I said, these two did independent investigations of the, ho of the whole host. So they, uh, each one had the host for several days. And both of them did transmission electron microscopic screening. And that's really important 
because um, you know when you do transmission electron screening, you can see a lot more even than super high um, amplified light microscopic analysis. You, you know, it's it's really on a different uh, uh, level. What the uh, the team noticed was that, of course, uh, again, I, for, I skipped over this part, but what they noticed was you have living heart tissue. Uh, the heart tissue um, is indicated by several different um, morphological and histopathological uh, characteristics. So you can um, see uh, also uh, the cells in the tissue do have contraction nodes in them and other indications uh, that it is um, heart tissue. Also, there is the fragmenting and segmenting of non-necrosed uh, tissue um, in the state of dying. So for example, these frag this fragmentation segmentation, it only happens in heart tissue when the, you know, how just before death, the heart starts beating very, very rapidly. And that very rapid beating of the heart um, you know, as death approaches, um, creates this fragmenting and segmenting, but it has to be in living tissue and it has to be from this, you know, very rapid beating of the heart, um, you know, um, that would come uh, right before death. So we know uh, that it is wounded tissue, it's in a state of dying, um, and it's, uh, um, um, uh, definitely non-necrosis, it's living tissue. And um, so the same characteristics that we've seen previously. Now let's get back to the transmission electron microscopic analysis. Because what's so interesting in that is that what Lutkowska and Sulkowski both found independently um, in their analyses is that the integration, like there's a fine weave, but it's a very super complex weave of the um, elements of the host, right? Uh, the, the very, very fibrally uh, elements of the host uh, um, uh, material, the host substance. And then you can see the uh, very thin filaments of the myofibrils. Like we're dealing with a few microns here, right? Microns are like teeny tiny, you know, cell, uh, you know, diameter kinds of things. Super small spaces, uh, that we're talking about that's only kind of visible through the transmission electron microscopic screening. What's interesting to see, though, is that this is on the thin uh, filaments of the myofibrils, uh, which, um, which when you, um, uh, you know, you look at it, uh, said uh, Lakowska just uttered this, you know, she just said, look, this weave is so complex and it's so finely integrated and such a small, teeny little micron um, you know, level, uh, um, you know, uh, lengths uh, that are, uh, you know, next to nothing almost, that no, no technology that we have today, not from NASA, not from any of the big national labs around the world, no technology that we have today could possibly replicate this. It couldn't be a fraud. We don't have anything, any technology that's capable of replicating a fraud like this that could produce such complex, fine uh, weaving between or integration between the substance of the host and the substance of the living heart tissue 
on the thin um, uh, filaments of the myofibrils. We just don't have uh, anything like that. And so, uh, first of all, it's naturalistically inexplicable because it's living heart tissue that's growing out of a host that has been disconnected from a, an embodied uh, circulatory system for quite some time. And then uh, in addition to all of that, um, you have, um, uh, you know, these, um, uh, you know, indications that it is living tissue that's wounded in a state of dying. And of course, it's put together in a level which couldn't possibly be replicated by any um, you know, human technology today. Uh, and so they are very convinced that this uh, uh, is very much non-naturalistically, non-scientifically uh, explicable. Uh, they have submitted their results uh, to um, uh, Chilpin, uh, to, to um, uh, the uh, uh, prelate at, uh, um, uh, in Sokolka, Poland. And so it continues to await uh, a final verdict uh, from the ecclesiastical and scientific commissions in Poland. But this is a really uh, remarkable uh, kind of, um, uh, you know, um, almost unduplicatable, unreplicatable analysis. All right, let me just, um, uh, you know, put together, you know, um, what we have. But I, I want to, before I do the final thing, uh, just take you through, um, you know, one thing and then uh, get into Jesus's Eucharistic uh, words um, just a little bit. Um, so um, uh, very quickly, um, we don't have a DNA, an amplifiable DNA profile. Uh, this is just a pure mystery. Uh, uh, why? I don't know. Um, Cassignan Gomez doesn't know. The people in the DNA labs don't know. Uh, nobody knows. I mean, uh, of course, I couldn't possibly hazard, uh, you know, a scientific guess or, a, you know, even a scientific hypothesis that could explain it. Uh, it's simply mysterious. But uh, I could hazard, you know, if I could slip on uh, the old theological uh, you know, um, hat here for a moment. Uh, well, maybe if Jesus didn't have a human father, um, well, if he didn't have a human father, how would he have gotten the DNA profile to produce the body that he had in conjunction with Mary's DNA? Well, if God can put his uh, uh, divine personhood uh, into the incarnate person of Christ, ha, no problem. I think God could create a, uh, uh, you know, a supernaturally provided fatherly uh, Y-chromosomed DNA profile to combine with that of Mary's. So I don't have any problem with that. But I do, uh, you know, I, I always think to myself, well, would God want this to be identified? Maybe not. And if he didn't, maybe he just uh, made it so that the DNA test uh, would not, um, uh, you know, that the, uh, the uh, DNA profile would not be uh, amplifiable through polymerase chain reaction. So maybe that's a possibility. I don't know. I can't make any conclusion about what it points to, but I think this fatherhood of Jesus thing has something to do with it. And I think the fact that God is just, he's already given us this super, you know, miracle almost, uh, you know, to, 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 you know, use the expression from uh, Tixla Mexico's declaration, ecclesiastical declaration. I think that this is uh, something of a, uh, a remarkable order, um, and it has something to do with uh, uh, Jesus's divine fatherhood, the divine fatherhood of Jesus's father. I think there's something um, uh, correlated there that has to do with it. All right, well, let's sum up. 
Well, what we see growing out of this host is tissue. It's living heart tissue that's growing out of the host. Uh, and that, I think, has been validated in three different ways and three different miracles. I mean, three different uh, miraculous hosts. So there's, you know, that's that's a for sure. There's living heart tissue that's literally growing out of the substance of the host. We know from the Sokolka miracle, um, uh, uh, miraculous host, we know that um, that um, uh, that host is integrated, the substance of the host is integrated so finely um, and uh, so complexly with the substance of the living heart tissue that it is completely unreplicatable, uh, unduplicatable by any known uh, human technology. Uh, we also know um, that uh, in the case of the Tixla host, that blood continues to exude from the host at least up to 2011. We know that that blood contains, as I said, all the elements of uh, human blood, uh, human hemoglobin, human uh, immunoglobulins, AB blood type, um, and uh, uh, um, uh, AB, um, uh, AB blood type and active red blood cells and active white blood cells literally caught in the action of phagocytizing lipids and he doing healing actions uh, in, in the blood. So we can see that, the as I said, the blood continues to be produced by this tissue in the dimple of the host and at least continued up to 2011, exuding uh, fresh blood. If uh, we put all that together with the fact that it is a wounded um, a person, um, a wounded heart tissue, I should say, uh, and even with the Sokolka and the, in the kind of in its, its act of dying, um, but still a living uh, tissue, non-necrosis tissue, then uh, basically uh, you can see we've got a miracle. It's not just the fact that the host didn't dissolve. It's not just the fact that morphological characteristics you know, still exist and the host has been submerged in water, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the real stuff is, wow living heart tissue that's wounded growing out of the substance of the host. And what do I think of, you know, I mean, again, I'm just going to take the scientific hat off for a moment and just put on my spiritual hat. I mean, you know, I presume that you like me, you know, we, we had these little sacred heart pictures when we were kids, you know, and I had my sacred heart picture and there on that picture, you know, there's, you can always see the, uh, you know, the heart kind of with the burning flame coming out of it and, you know, the crown of thorns on top of the host, I mean, on top of the heart, uh, where you can actually, you know, perceive this is the wounded heart that is giving rise to this love, this burning love, this flame of love, the living flame of love. That is, I mean, truly living flame of love that is coming from the heart that we see. And so, you know, my image ever since I started studying um, these hosts has been my sacred heart picture um, from when I was a kid of Jesus uh, with his eyes just looking, you know, directly at you uh, through this picture uh, with a sense of compassion, with a sense of love, with a sense of drawing us closer to himself, but also a sense of trying to say, you know, um, come closer to me. I'm beckoning you, you know, not just in moral conversion, uh, but in relationship and spiritual conversion. I'm come, you know, come closer to my heart. And of course, when we receive that in the Holy Eucharist, we receive his um, body, blood, soul, and divinity. But as we receive it, he is going to transform us, core ad core loquitur, right? Heart speaking to heart. So that's the kind of image that I come away with. 
Now, I think the, um, if you give me just a few minutes here more, but uh, I just wanted to go into what did Jesus intend at the Last Supper? Because what I think you're going to see here is that um, at the, the Last Supper, uh, Jesus intended to do this very thing, to give us his body and blood. Yes, uh, it would include his risen body and blood. Yes, it would include his whole soul and his divine personhood. Yes, yes. But his real body and blood that was being sacrificed on the cross at Calvary. And if you give me a few moments, I think I can show you the parallels between what Jesus, what the, um, uh, God is doing in these Eucharistic hosts with respect to showing us uh, the heart of Jesus on the cross, being wounded, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, and exuding blood. I think um, uh, that is what Jesus's intention was at the Last Supper. Yes, he was wanted to give us his real body and blood hanging from the cross at Calvary. He also wanted to give us, uh, you know, his divine personhood and, and his whole soul, his whole uh, person, um, you know, there uh, in the in the uh, body and blood. And I think you can see this so clearly in his Eucharistic words. So if you'll bear with me for just another uh, 15 minutes, I can get this, uh, um, you know, just a little bit of a case made for you. Uh, you know, and this is uh, a, a really, I think, uh, uh, sound exegetical analysis, um, you know, scriptural analysis uh, for you that will give you uh, a sense of what he intended at the Last Supper to give us his real body and blood, uh, his real divine personhood, his whole self, his soul, his whole self. Okay, so let's go through the Eucharistic words for just a minute. We're heading into part two here. I'm going to do it uh, super rapido. So um, the first uh, thing to notice um, is... Um, you know, that Jesus, uh, you know, when he says, this is my body uh, given for you. Well, the Aramaic there or the Hebrew, we don't know which really. Because it's a sacred act, uh, a lot of theologians, uh, scripture scholars say, got to be Hebrew. But also, Jesus did speak the common tongue there uh, in Aramaic. So it's anybody's guess. But what uh, uh, clearly this, um, the Eucharistic words go back to Jesus's own words at the Last Supper, which, as I'll show you, has been translated into Greek, because there's lots of Semitisms in it. So uh, let's take a look at the first thing. What did Jesus's word for body, um, whether it be Be uh, uh, Den Bezri or something of that nature, we don't know. But the main thing is, uh, what did it get translated into in Greek? It, it got translated to the word soma. Now, soma is distinct from sarks. Sarx is uh, flesh on the bone. That's the word that was not used. The word that was used was soma. And soma in Greek really means body, like we would use it in everybody or somebody. We don't mean every flesh or some flesh. We mean every whole person, every person, um, you know, in their wholeness. And so that's the word that's chosen to translate uh, uh, Jesus's uh, Hebrew slash Aramaic. So that's uh, the first thing to notice, because that's really important. Jesus, of course, wants to give us his body and blood on the cross of Calvary. He also wants to give us his risen body, his soul, his divine person. Let's go down to then, you know, I get this question all the time from college kids, right? Or I used to get it when I was teaching college. 
um, all the time. They'd say, well, wait a minute. I mean, why does Jesus have body and then the blood? I mean, isn't the blood part of the body? I mean, what's the deal here, you know? And and I said, well, that's a good question. But I said, you know, every first century Hebrew could tell, uh, a, a Semitic person could tell you the reason for that. And uh, they said, well, what's that? Because in a separate in in a in a sacrifice, the blood is taken from the sacrifice. So if you had a sin uh, sacrifice like a bird, let's say, uh, then you would take the blood out of the bird. Then you would immolate the carcass of the bird without the blood. Then sprinkle the blood around the altar for the purification of the sins of the people, right? Because this would be like a sin offering. So when you're separating um, the right of the bread, namely the the right of the body, from the right of the wine, namely the right of the blood, if you were a Jewish person, you would say right away, is this guy doing like a, a sin sacrifice here? And of course, the Eucharistic words give it away, as we'll see, uh, point blank. So there's no question about that. What Jesus has in mind there is a sacrifice, a self-sacrifice, and that's the reason why the blood is separated from the body, and there are two different rites. Just like in Israel, two rites in the sin sacrifice, immolation of the bird uh, carcass without the blood and the sprinkling of the blood for the forgiveness of sins. And we'll see Jesus referring to that directly. Um, in his Eucharistic words. Let's, though, before we go, we need to get an insight from the Gospel of John, which is very clear. And that is when Jesus um, elevates, when Jesus um, is giving um, the host, you know, he says, uh, you know, this is my body, and I'm going to use the uh, present passive participle being given for you, or being given, um, and if you're in the Lucan thing, it'll be for you. But the key thing with the Lucan, um, uh, you know, version is the word didominon, and didominon is a present passive participle. So what Jesus is saying here, whatever his uh, Hebrew uh, or um, Aramaic may have been, it probably was a present passive participle in Hebrew. Uh, there's different, a different way of indicating it um, that's slightly different from the way we do it in English or you do it in Greek. But um, this is, I'm not going to get into this right now. But the present passive participle, Luke thinks that this is um, a big deal. And the reason he thinks so is because, as we shall see in a moment, when Jesus is giving that bread, what he is calling his body, this is my body, given for you, being given for you now, present passive participle, now, being given for you, denominant. Now, you look at that and go, wait a minute here. That's very interesting. Why would you put it that way unless you're saying that the gift that is being given on Calvary, um, on the cross at Calvary, that that is what is being given now to the apostles. And I would point out the same thing again in Luke's version, um, you know, with the wine. And we'll talk about this momentarily. Uh, Acunomenon is the word, again, a present passive parcel. This is uh, um, the new covenant in my blood, 
which is being poured out, like now being poured out um, for the for, uh, uh, um, um, for many for the forgiveness of sins. Okay. Now we'll talk about that many in the Matthew and Mark version in just a moment, but for the moment, uh, let's just um, get to um, what Jesus is doing here and the insight from the Gospel of John. When Jesus is handing the bread to his apostles, which I will contend and show you later, what is meant here is um, that he's handing his body on the cross at Calvary. We'll get into the prophetic usage of time in just a moment. But the main thing right now to remember um, is take it literally. This is his body on the, hanging from the cross at Calvary that he is handing to his apostles. Now, that body is his whole being given over in death, right? So his whole life uh, is being given. His whole self is being given unto death and self-sacrifice. Listen to John's words when he says, There is no greater love, no greater love that a man can have than to give his life for his friends. Now, when you look at that for just a second, hmm, Listen to those Eucharistic words for just a moment. You're right. This is my body, my soma, my whole self being given, right? Like being given now for you. So it's almost as if the body on the cross of Calvary is literally assumed into the bread that Jesus is handing to the apostles it's not just his body and blood. Oh, it's certainly that. It's not just his whole life, his whole personhood given in self-sacrifice and love. Oh, it, it certainly is that. But it is additionally, um, and even more importantly, um, it, uh, no, not more importantly, it is additionally and just as importantly, it is his unconditional love. It literally is this like Jesus is bringing an act of love into the world, an unrestricted act of love into the world. And it's this unrestricted act of love that is going to outshine every sin that we have, uh, well, that we have committed, that we are repentant for. That's going to literally uh, pay the penalty, as it were. No one can lord it over us anymore right? The, the penalty has already been paid par excellence. Um, and so uh, the idea for Jesus is to create this act of love that is going to become truly the act of love when we go into the confessional and we get um, absolution um, from for our sins. It is that act of love which is pouring out of that priest's hand, act of love of Jesus on Calvary. It is the act of love which is going to redeem us and heal us and transform us, right, that is uh, embedded, as it were, uh, in the Eucharistic uh, bread that has become transformed into the real body and unrestricted love of Christ. I think it's really important uh, to see this dimension of what Jesus is doing. Okay, let's get to the blood words. And uh, I, I'm going to have to finish up real uh, fast here because I, I got a little behind the main thing to remember, though, with the blood is three things. That we've already been through the sin sacrifice. So notice then um, that Jesus' words, he says, uh, 
um, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So the blood is definitely connected with the forgiveness of sins. The blood right is being separated from the body right. You can see it's a sin sacrifice, sin sacrifice, sin sacrifice. If you are first century Israelite, if you missed it, you, you didn't go to catechism class. I mean, for all intents and purposes, this would be obvious. The main thing that is uh, clear with Jesus' Eucharistic words is that no longer will an animal be the instrument through which the um, forgiveness of sins will take place. It will now be the blood of the Son of God. It will now be the blood of the exclusive Son of the Father. It will now be, right, the blood that can literally overcome evil, overcome the evil spirit, overcome death, the, the blood of God, not the blood of a sin offering, an animal, a mere animal, but God himself with an act of unconditional love, who is unconditionally bodily and spiritually and divinely present in that Eucharist that's going to just outshine and pound away um, the sin, the death, the grip of the evil spirit that's embedded in sin. It's just going to kill it. The devil never had a worse nightmare than when Jesus was saying these Eucharistic words and then fulfilling them on the cross. But that's a whole other story. No time for that tonight. The second thing to notice is, again, what feast does Jesus go up to Jerusalem on? Clearly, he goes on the feast of Passover. And as we all remember, right, this is the feast. And it's always celebrated every year um, when, um, uh, you know, um, the Israelites reenact, relive, uh, you know, the uh, the Passover, and of course, the liberation from Egypt uh, into the desert and the promised land. So the main thing here to remember, why did Jesus choose the Passover feast? And we all remember the Lamb of God and um, the Paschal Lamb that is celebrated in Christianity. All these things come uh, from the well-understood meaning of Passover. Because remember what happens at Passover, the angel, you take uh, the, uh, one of the unblemished sheep from the goats or the uh, unblemished lambs from either the sheep or the goats. You take that lamb, you sacrifice it, put the blood on the doorposts of every Israelite household, and the angel of death will pass over those houses. That is, of course, the protection, not from death forever, like into eternal life. When the Israelites are, are celebrating that, it's the Passover, right? The protection from death so that you, the Israelites could get out of Egypt and be freed from the Egyptian captors and enslavers and now go into the promised land. So there's this writ large all over. The, there is the symbolism of, um, you know, um, the angel of death passing over, getting out of the hands of captors the freedom from slavery, uh, um, you know, uh, in Egypt, and all of these things are writ large. Now, that's why Jesus is going to do that, because the Holy Eucharist has every single one of those Passover images embedded in it, but not in the very narrow way of the Passover uh, in Egypt. I mean, the Passover, uh, um, you know, in the, um, uh, out of Egypt into uh, of the 
of the angel of death so the uh, uh, Israelis could, uh, uh, you know, do the exodus um, um, out of Egypt. Okay. The uh, Now what Jesus does is reinterpret it. It now becomes not only the, um, uh, the uh, uh, protection from death, right? It's going to become eternal life. Not just you're going to be protected so you can get out of Egypt. You're protected from death forever. That's the new uh, writ large, the new Passover, the new Paschal Lamb. You're protected from death forever. Uh, no death will ever touch you uh, in, in the future if you remain faithful to Jesus. And this sacrament is going to expedite that and help you uh, in, in your pathway. Furthermore, the liberation is not just limited to Egypt. Now the freedom that's extended is freedom from our enemy, freedom from the evil spirit, freedom, right, um, so that we can break the grip of that guy who's always, you know, the more you receive the Holy Eucharist, the more his grip just weakens and weakens if you receive it sincerely and receive it, um, you know, um, uh, 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 reverently and, and so forth. If you really know what you're doing and accept this gift into your heart, uh, in fact, if you don't know what you're doing, uh, you know, it still transform you. So what Jesus is planning there is freedom from ourselves, freedom from our sinful nature, freedom and healing from past sin, freedom from the grip of the evil spirit, and freedom from death. One big, huge package. No animal, no animalic lamb could possibly do this. It would have to be the son of God lamb. That's the only son. The being who has power over life and death. The being who has power over the evil spirit and can crush him. The being that has power through the love that he's exemplifying on Calvary. That's the one that will uh, overpower uh, the evil spirit. Now, um, I just got to do one quick thing on time. You're going to have to take my word for it. And I'm going to finish up. Because what's really interesting is that um, when uh, the Protestant Reformation uh, tackled uh, these uh, scriptural texts, what Luther and many others, and especially Calvin and Zwingli, missed was the fact that uh, Jesus was Jewish. Uh, he wasn't Greek. He certainly wasn't German. Um, you know. And so uh, uh, what's the deal with the Jewish view of time, as opposed to maybe a Greek or a contemporary scientific view of time. The Hebrew people believed, as many Semitic and ancient peoples did, by the way, there's a very good book on this called The Sacred and the Profane by Mircea Eliot, a big philosopher of religion, has done kind of the um, definitive study. But I, I digress. The main thing is the, to remember is that time exists in the mind of God. And if time exists in the mind of God, then God can collapse the time between the sacred event and the present. God can even collapse the time between a future event, which you say, well, if it's in the future, it doesn't exist. In the mind of God, it does, who is the eternal now, the future event and the present. So in other words, God has control of time in his mind and of course, uh, I believe that today, even as a person who wrote an entire doctoral dissertation 
on the uh, idea of time in general, theory of relativity, et cetera. I still say God has to have time. You have to have time. Um, you know, a non-contemporaneous continuum can only exist um, uh, in uh, the mind of an atemporal being that can put together the earlier and the later, um, you know, in the simultaneity of atemporality, yet at the same time allow uh, for the distension of time uh, in a non, um, uh, you know, uh, um, eternal uh, framework. So the main thing, though, to look at is this. If God can collapse time, let's look at what the Hebrew thought about prophetic um, uh, future time, right? The, remember, the prophetic word, the prophet's word, has a life of its own. It takes on its own life if it's uttered according to God's will in prophecy. It goes into the future with its own life. And what does it do? It brings the future event into the present. A collapse of time takes place between the future event. When Jesus says with that de-dominon, ecunomenon, a present passive participle, right, being given for you, being poured out for you, like now, when this is a proper translation of this Hebrew Semitic mentality of the prophetic word with a life of its own, come, going into the future at Calvary, and bringing back the body of Jesus hanging on the cross, the blood dripping from the side of the man on the cross at, um, at Calvary, and bringing it into the chalice of his blood. So when Jesus is actually offering this to the um, to his apostles at the Last Supper, he's, he's already transformed it. He doesn't say, this is the bread that's been transformed into my body. Uh-uh. He says, this is my body. This bread as it were, is transformed in the future body of me hanging there on the cross at Calvary on Friday, and it's now available to you on Thursday through the collapse of time in the mind of God, the sacred, uh, as it were, um, uh, the, the collapse of time from a present event to a sacred event. That's uh, the whole idea of semantic mentality. No, just Get the Greek, German, scientific stuff out of your brain. You'll never understand the mind of Jesus until you get the collapse of time. He's a Jewish person. He has that same viewpoint. And, of course, he knows very well by his own divine personhood that time must exist in the mind of God. Now, let's take just one quick look. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Remembrance. I'm telling you right now, anamnesis is the Greek translation of the Hebrew, the Hebrew word basically means relive, right? Relive this, right? Just like you, a Jewish person would do at the Passover. You're reliving the Passover event to collapse the time between your reliving in the present and the past sacred event. The very reliving of the words. Again, read the Mercia Eliade text. By the way, very good text also in, uh, in Old Testament theology, uh, volume two by uh, Gerhard von Rad. Excellent text, by the way, in Sacramento Mundi, the article by Johannes Betts um, in uh, Sacramento Mundi. Just uh, take a look at that on the Holy Eucharist, the uh, exegesis scriptural interpretation. Uh, you can get this uh, example of time. Uh, for the time being right now, the main thing to remember is when that priest is holding up that host, Jesus's intention is that he is reliving the institution of the Eucharist. When he holds that host up, repeating the Eucharistic words of Jesus, the time between 
um, his holding up the host and the past sacred event, namely Jesus giving the bread to his disciples at the Last Supper, bam, it collapses. It's fused, as it were, uh, into the, the, uh, into the uh, species of the host. It literally becomes uh, the new reality, what we call the new substance of the host, transubstantiation. It becomes the new substance of the host, uh, invisibly so, but definitely through the collapse of time, every bit of it is present there. Now, go back to those Eucharistic miracles we're just going through. Isn't it amazing? Jesus is just saying, aha, I've got this so finely integrated that my living heart tissue that's right there in the cars of Calvary, I'm trying to tell you, this is it. Uh, you are receiving that into you and the unrestricted love that's coming from it as well. So what Jesus is basically, what we're seeing scientifically in the Eucharistic miracles, we see this is definitely his intention at the Last Supper as well. If we understand the Semitic view of time, the collapse of time. So let's just look at the double collapse of time and end it right there. So basically, the priest holding up the host at Mass. What's happening? It's collapsing the time between um, uh, him and Jesus giving the bread to his disciples with those Eucharistic words. But Jesus is not giving the, just bread to his disciples. Jesus is giving another time collapse, right? He's got the future Calvary event collapsing into his, um, uh, the, the, the bread now transformed into his body, uh, to his apostles at uh, the Last Supper. And the moment this happens, this double collapse of time, that means that what you are really receiving is what's in those Eucharistic miracles. You're literally receiving uh, the, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ on Calvary for you in an act of unrestricted love uh, unto the forgiveness of your sins, as Jesus declares it uh, to be, and you're receiving it unto the protection of of um, yourself from evil, the breaking the grip of the devil um, and, and protection um, uh, of uh, of you from every form of pa uh, the, the, the damage of past sin. It also, of course, is transforming your heart into the heart of Jesus. It is literally reunifying you with the mystical body because it's his risen body. It's his soul. It's his divine personhood as well as the body hanging from the cross, as well as his unrestricted love, what you're receiving into you at that very moment is leading you on the path to salvation. The more we receive it, the more, whether we recognize it sometimes or not, the more I tell you it's transformative, it will definitely uh, move it. And now in our scientific and skeptical age, now God is giving us through the very uh, pathway of science, a clue, no, more than a clue, a naturalistically inexplicable manifestation of this real body and blood, alive, living, still giving life and love to this very day. And yes, the wonderful, really present body and blood, soul and divinity in the Holy Eucharist. Thanks so very much. And my apologies for going over time. I, I uh, just couldn't resist getting to the final uh, conclusion. But how could you not, Father? Tremendous study. Thank you so much for uh, for pleasure. sharing this with all of us. is absolutely incredible. And uh, and I mean, every time that we have you at the ICC, but but tonight especially, it's a huge shot in the arm. Like you say, we live in such a an age of skepticism and just an environment hostile of faith. And even that you're you know we're all doing our best 
Um, and we're we're studying at the ICC. We are uh, going to mass faithfully, but it can be hard to witness and to and to enthusiastically uh, embrace and share and spread these truths. But uh, the the uh, the gift of these miracles is uh, okay. an incredible incredible shot in the arm. And and just with all of the science behind it and everything, you know, we should be emboldened uh, by this. And, yeah. and and of course, your presentation will be on our website to share. Uh, with with uh, with many, you can all use it as a resource in the future. Um, this is this is incredible stuff. Okay, let's uh, let's start off with uh, there. There are a handful along these lines coming in. Um, this one's from Joan. If scientists studying the tissue samples did not know they were examining uh, the true presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, how was it ensured that the samples were treated with respect and care during every step of the investigation? Yeah, I would say that that is typical protocol. Nobody is, um, you know, uh, going to treat a sample, you know, that has been sent up and, um, you know, uh, carelessly or, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, dispose of it without permission of the uh, person who is the owner of, of that tissue. And of course, uh, you know, the owner of the tissue, uh, namely the church in, let's say, Argentina, uh, would have been very careful to point out that we want this back. This is of value to us. We need it. Um, and of course, they couldn't say it is sacred uh, until afterwards, as you saw when Zugabi heard that, he was blown away. But I think people uh, did treat the, the tissue, um, you know, uh, as they would uh, treat any um, tissue that belonged to somebody else in, in, in the best uh, possible way. Um, people think that, you know, scientific investigation uh, will um, somehow be, uh, you know, antithetical, um, you know, to maybe the sacredness of the body and blood of Jesus. But, you know, honestly, no bishop ever thought that. I mean, uh, they're the ones that call for the scientific examination. And secondly, uh, to be uh, quite frank, I think Jesus, and this is my own view, uh, Jesus was basically saying I'm putting this out in front of you so that you'll take a quick look at all these things with your science so that basically, right, 2,000 years later, you're going to see it's my real body and blood. And what the church thought all along for 1,400 years, she was right on. And, of course, that's because it was my will and intention to give my real body and blood. Beautiful. Uh, Ines, all right, I'll come on to you. Go ahead and uh, unmute yourself. Amazing talk, Father. Thank you so much. Um, my question is regarding what you were saying about the DNA and the divine paternity of Jesus. I heard in a talk that there was only Jesus that the samples only had an X chromosome and not a Y chromosome. Can you confirm or explain or? Well, I haven't uh, seen the X chromosome. Maybe they did identify an X chromosome. Uh, I haven't seen that in the lab report um, of uh, either lab report of uh, Casimir Gomez. Uh, but um, obviously, uh, Jesus couldn't be a man uh, without a wife. Um, uh, and as I said, I think God is perfectly capable of making that Y chromosome. But I think the reason no DNA profile was amplifiable that I know of um, uh, anyway, is because um, uh, God made his contribution 
to the male uh, part of the uh, of the um, uh, DNA profile, I think he made that go away. And um, and of course, without it, um, uh, basically what you have left are some uh, remnant uh, uh, molecular uh, constitutions, but you're not going to get uh, a real amplifiable profile. But if there is such a thing, uh, I'm sure there could maybe be some uh, such a chromosome identifiable. I, I just didn't see it in any of those lab reports. So sorry to say. Thank you. There's a Thank lot you. of questions coming in, Father, uh, sure. asking about the current status of these hosts. Are they still uh, bleeding? Do we still have them? Are they still preserved? Well, that's a good question because, um, you know, it goes up, you know, to 2011 and then all of a sudden you've got some silence here. But I know one thing that the church um, does. These hosts belong to the diocese in which they occur. They are responsible for making sure that these things are um, kept respectfully and um, uh, in good order in their diocese. And so um, essentially, if there has been subsequent testing, I have not read about it. Um, and I, you know, sometimes these dioceses become very conservative. And um, would they want to just put it away and, you know, have these expositions and just say enough is enough on the scientific testing? Uh, that seems to be the uh, uh, the consensus up to now. I'm not sure about Sokolka. They've been a little bit more tight-lipped than Tixla and Buenos Aires. Um, but my suspicion is probably the same. You know, uh, we've done enough. Enough is enough. And so... Um, uh, you know, you know my opinion about that. I think, well, enough is where God would want it to be enough. So <laughs> I'd like to, if I can find out more, I would like to, uh, as long as it's done respectfully. Uh, same with the Shroud of Turin. I mean, that's really Jesus's blood, in my view. You know, I, I want to find out whether there are, you know, cosmogenic isotopes in that shroud. As much as any other physicist, you know, who's been near it, you know, there's just hundreds of us once take a look you know and so let's see if they're there you know and um so i'm hope well the shroud i think will be subsubsequently investigated but these eucharistic hosts all really depends on the diocese so sorry to say nothing new to report um uh unless another scientific investigation on one of them is commissioned by um the diocese itself got it gordon uh, up here on screen go ahead yeah father spitzer um, there are two things that come to mind. So did you read whether this was AB positive or AB negative blood, or did they not test for the... They, they actually don't specify, as you probably know, um, you know, uh, it's, you know, whenever you're talking, uh, you know, some some uh, enzymes and, and uh, um, characteristics are much more stable than others, you know, and so um, uh, the AB part is the one that is... Uh, stable, evident, testable again and again and again, but the um, uh, the uh, positive negative feature characteristic uh, is not. And the second part of this, and you were talking about the collapse of time. So, in the mind of God, the closest thing that we could really say is that time is like a solid, like a lattice, that it can. So, if you push on this, then it's capable of of bringing that point of singularity. Well, there's only one. There's one celebration. Could, yeah, you could you could compare it to less, 
Well, I mean, you don't have to. I mean, God can just uh, think it as a singularity, and that would do the trick um, right there. I mean, he, all he has to do is, uh, you know, think away, as it were, the non-contemporaneous continuum that separates earlier from later, um, and that would do the trick. So it could be done by a variety of things, uh, um, naturalistic um, features, or it could be done just by you know, supernaturally. You know, it's like the Fatima miracle. You know, um, um, some people just say, "Oh, you know, you know, I, I you know, I have the highest respect for uh, Father Doctor Stanley Yaki there, and I mean, uh, truly a great physicist, and his air lens. You know, um, you know, it, it's a very complex theory of the the air lens that causes you know the prismatic effect of uh, of the sun, you know, an atmospheric effect, and so forth." And he's, you know, he's got crosswinds coming down from below and, uh, you know, up and the east-west wind blowing in this way. Ice crystals that have to, so you put together, well, what are the odds that the ice crystals, uh, the air lands, um, the east-west uh, wind that's going to circulate the um, this, this uh, air lens in one direction, and then the huge, you know, um, wind uh, and boomerang effect of, of the warm wind uh, that's being projected from the sun onto the ground, putting it back into the sun. You say, oh, well, the odds against that happening are about one part in 10 to the 120th or something. You know, a trillion, 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 trillion to one. Okay. So what's the difference between that happening? Um, you know, all these natural forces coming together that are so totally against the, the odds. And then you say, oh, well, um, uh, yeah. Uh, what about, um, you know, a supernatural lens? It's just a supernatural, whether God uses natural means to do it or just creates his own supernatural lens that creates the atmospheric effect. It's, it's a miracle. <laughs> it's naturalistically, you know, almost, you know, uh, inexplicable. Now, of course, the naturalistic explanation of Yaki could, you know, is good, but, you know, um, um, but it, it's it's miraculous just by its improbability, practically speaking. But anyway, it could be a, a, a last formation. It could be a variety of other kinds of uh, constructions, or it could just plain, plain be God who, you know, makes the non-contemporaneous continuum exist. He just makes it not exist. Um, so a really good question. Thank you, Father. Sister uh, Angela up here, go ahead. Um, yeah, I just kind of wanted to add a comment to your last question, Peter, about um, any updates on the uh, the Eucharist in the Sokolka, Poland. Um, I actually had the privilege of going there, and they I have a picture of the monstrance that they have. They have uh -huh. it um, exposed behind. It, it kind of looks like this. You can see it wow. there. But, um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And they um they also pray um, it's the chaplet of Jesus Christ in the Most Blessed Sacrament. Um, it's a beautiful chaplet. I can uh -huh. send it to you if you want. But um yeah, yeah, yeah it's behind a grid, it. and you can still see it today. They still have it exposed at St. Anthony's Church over mm -hmm. there. That was it. Oh, that's, uh, no, really great. Thanks for for uh, putting that out. And maybe you know we could put put that little picture there on the website or something too. Yeah, tremendous. Yes, sister, if you could email me uh, maybe the, a skin of the front and, and the back with the prayer as well, that'd be great yes. to share. Will do. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, Father, let's end with this question from okay. Thomas. 
Um, he asks if you could explain the church's understanding, uh, uh, going back to how you're talking about the collapse in time and, and the real presence. Could you explain the church's understanding of Jesus's presence in the Eucharist and his presence at the right hand of the Father in heaven? How do we reconcile those two? Well, his presence in the Eucharist, of course, uh, is, you know, by um, his allowing um, all of the events of Calvary, etc., cetera, uh, to be collapsed into time. So we say it's not just Jesus' crucified body that's present in the Eucharist. The time collapses between his crucifixion and his resurrection. So his risen body is also included in that. And then his presence at the right hand of the Father, which, of course, is timeless now. I mean, it's kind of in a non, uh, it's, it, you know, um, uh, 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 a non-contemporaneity, non double negative, though, right? So it's present, you know, in its atemporality. That's also present uh, in the Holy Eucharist. And, of course, he is at the right hand of the Father. That's just right hand of the Father means he is exalted. Um, and lives within the same radiance. Now, of course, he always was exalted at the right hand of the Father um, as the Son, right? So for all time, in atemporality, right, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was towards God or with God, and the Word was God. Now, that's no question about that. But now Jesus has his incarnate body, and his incarnate body has not been shed off and you know, um, no longer present. Now his human nature has become glorified. And so that glorified human body at the right hand of the Father, right, exalted at the right hand of the Father, is with the risen body, with the um, uh, uh, fleshly body and blood on the cross at Calvary. All of it is together, even um, together with the transformed species um, of the bread and wine that Jesus hands to his apostles. That's what we receive uh, into us. And you go, well, that is just so unbelievable that something like that would happen. Yeah, that's really unbelievable. But I use Blaise Pascal's little formula at the end of the day. Remember what he said? You know, somebody said, I just can't believe in the real presence of the Eucharist. And Blaise Pascal said, well, can you believe in the incarnation of Jesus, the divine person of Jesus into a fleshly uh, uh, corporeality? Oh, yes, I can. Well, you can believe in the incarnation. What are you talking about? The Eucharist, you know, uh, you know, if I might use the expression, is hardly anything by comparison to that miracle. So let's uh, let's just uh, be consistent here, man. Uh, any person who says I believe in the incarnation, but I don't believe in the Holy Eucharist, I just look at him and I go. Why? Why would you say that? I mean, if you can believe in the incarnation, man, you can believe in, you know, if God's will is to incarnate his son into um, a finite uh, nature while he still occupies his, his divine nature, uh, all I can tell you is um, it's nothing for him uh, to enable that, you know, quadruple transition, you know, the crucified body, the risen body, the divine, uh, the soul, the divine personhood that's now ex exalted, uh, the uh, human body that's now exalted the right hand to bring it all into the species of the Eucharist. I mean, that's completely within the faith construct that we have. 
And the reason is, is because it's the logic of love. At the end of the day, this thing is the logic of love. And, you know, the, his whole self poured out for us on the cross and, and his whole risen body that he's giving to us and his whole divine personhood incarnate in that body, that, you know, it's all part of love, the unrestricted love of God that heals us, that forgives us, that transforms us in, in his image, that breaks the grip of the evil spirit, that heal, that uh, protects us from death and ushers us on the pathway to eternal life. It's all unconditional love, unrestricted love. And that, of course, is no greater love that a man can have than to give his life for his friend. That Eucharist we are receiving is his real body and blood, soul and divinity. But more than that, uh, too, uh, not more than that, uh, in, in conjunction with that, it is his unrestricted love, redeeming us, loving us, and bringing us toward himself. And that's why John repeats again and again, you know, in his gospel, you know, the it's the bread that's uh, um, a real food that will bring eternal life. Anyway, thanks so much, everybody, for your kind uh, attention today. And um, just so grateful you were able uh, to participate. Well, we're so grateful to you, Father. Uh, it's it's been an incredible night. Thank you for kicking off our curriculum year with uh, with passion and gusto. This is an excellent, excellent first talk, Father. Could you close us out with your blessing this evening? Absolutely. Bow your heads and pray for God's blessing, and may the Lord Lord of unrestricted love, the Lord who loved us so much that He came into the world not to condemn us but to bring us through conversion of heart into the fullness of his life. The Lord who loved us so much that he gave himself on the cross at Calvary and keeps re-giving it to us again and again, signified in these Eucharistic miracles, signified in the words of his son. May the Lord of that unrestricted love pour into your life through the Holy Eucharist, through the sacrament of reconciliation, through the wonderful church that he has given us, Pour into your life so that you might be redeemed unto his salvation, the overcoming of all ego, the overcoming of all darkness and sin, the overcoming of all evil and the breaking of the spell of the evil spirit unto your eternal life. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.